If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Monday, December the 11th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Joining me today in studio here in Hoover's Washington, D.C. office, Adam White. Adam's a Hoover Research Fellow based here in the nation's capital. He writes frequently on the courts of the administrative state for the Wall Street Journal, the Weekly Standard Commentary, the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy, and SCOTUS blog. He's also a contributing editor for National Affairs, the New, the New Atlantic and, and City Journal, and a contributor to the Yale Journal on Regulations blog, Notice and Comment. That's exhausting just reading that. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for making the time. All right, November, December of 2017, Adam, and there's one agency that's all the rage in Washington. It's an agency that consists of about 1,600 employees, which is about 1 118th the size of the Homeland Security. It's about a $600 million, uh, $600 million billion, uh, $600 million annual budget, which is about one-thirtieth of what NASA spends each year. It is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. That's right. Why should the American people care about the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau? Well, you should only care about the CFPB if you have a mortgage or credit cards or you borrow money or lend money. Uh, the CFPB, however small it is relative to the rest of the government, is extraordinarily important, and it was designed to be important. And how did this little agency land in the news? Well, it landed in the news most recently because of a, how to describe it, uh, it landed in the news right over the Thanksgiving holiday because suddenly we woke up and found that two people were claiming to be the rightful head of the agency. There's a change at the top, right? The, that, the current, the man who was in charge of CFPB left, right? That's right. The original director, Richard Cordray, who was originally put into office by President Obama, with right. a so-called recess appointment, then was appointed to serve a full five-year term. Right. He announced that he's leaving his office a little bit early, and he selected, on his way out the door, he selected the person he said would be leading in his absence. He selected. That's right. He uh, he appointed his chief of staff, a 30-something uh, woman named Leandra English, mm -hmm. to be the acting director of the CFPB, uh, while President Trump designated his OMB director, Mick Mulvaney, to run it in the interim. And so the Monday after Thanksgiving, everybody came back to work and found two people claiming to run this extraordinarily important agency. All right. I looked up the agency on its website, Adam, and I found that this is how it describes what it does for a living. Bullet point. Rooting out unfair, deceptive, or abusive acts or practices by writing rules, supervising companies, and enforcing the law. Bullet point. Enforcing laws that outlaw discrimination in consumer finance. Bullet point. Taking consumer complaints. Bullet point. Enhancing financial education. Bullet point. Researching the consumer experience of using financial products, bullet point. Monitoring financial markets for new risks and consumers. Boy, that sounds pretty good to me. What could possibly go wrong here? Well, they certainly uh, describe their work in glowing terms. Uh, they probably give themselves an A so far. Uh, the CFPB does a lot of things. It was created in the Dodd-Frank financial reforms of 2010. Right. This is a young agency. I think it opened its door in about July 2011. Right? That's right. Yeah. It was created uh, in part to, to bring together scattered regulatory programs that were run by other agencies, and then was given new powers that Congress in 2010 concluded were lacking at the federal level. And so they created this turbocharged agency, which had been the brainchild of then-Professor Liz Warren, now Senator Liz Warren. Um, she had written it in a, a you know, she wrote it in a, a journal article 
Um, usually these journal articles go off into the ether and become nothing. Hers became a federal agency with unprecedented powers, or let me say an unprecedented combination of power and independence from the president and Congress. And the agency has conducted itself accordingly, uh, carrying out its own turbocharged agenda of financial regulation, always in a very um, progressive uh, mindset, um, while at the same time thumbing its nose at Congress any time that Congress tried to conduct meaningful oversight of the agency. But the intent, we would say the intent would be noble, right? It's trying to look out for the American consumer, correct? Yeah, I don't have any qualms with the idea of, of these things being regulated at the federal level. I think one of the takeaways from the financial crisis and what led to it is we do need a little bit better oversight at the federal level, and some issues were slipping through the cracks. But it's the execution. That's right. It's first and foremost the execution. I mean, I have I have complaints with with some of the policies, uh, the ways they've gone about regulating mortgages. Um, I saw this as a practicing lawyer when I was in the original constitutional lawsuit against the CFPB. I saw how some of the agency's original mortgage regulations came down extremely burdensome on small community banks. And so I have problems with the with some of the execution of the policies. But first and foremost, I have a, a fundamental qualms with the idea of creating an agency that's partially independent from the president, completely independent from Congress's power of the purse by the way it's funded, um, and which conducts itself in a way that's, that, that really brandishes that independence at every opportunity. So a Professor White is teaching a class on how an agency goes off the tracks. How does the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau go off the tracks? Is this, is this the people of the talk who are leading off the tracks, or is this the people working, the worker bees inside of it? Who is leading things astray? Well, I think the problem comes down to Congress, the Congress and the president that created this agency in 2010. Obviously, I have a lot of problems with the way the agency has carried out its business, but all of that is first and foremost symptomatic of the statute that Congress wrote. Mm -hmm. So the two basic problems are this. First, it's independent from the president. Most agencies, like the Environmental Protection Agency, the Treasury Department, the president has total authority to hire and fire, the, or sorry, total authority to fire the agency head at will. Mm -hmm. So the agency is directly accountable to the president and then to the people. And the second main area of accountability is the way that Congress funds the agency. James Madison said in the Federalist Papers that the power of the purse is the most effectual tool that the people have to arm themselves against the overreaches of other parts of government. And so Congress by holding that power of the purse and funding or refusing to fund an agency, keeps that agency in check. Congress took that power away from itself when it wrote the Dodd-Frank Act by saying, we're not going to fund this agency through appropriations. Rather, this agency can just go to the Federal Reserve every year, claim $600 million in funding, the Fed has to give it, then the agency can spend that money as it likes. Mm -hmm. And the agency, in this case, the CFPB, was not afraid to brag about that. In their early annual reports, they said, this funding mechanism gives us full independence. That was their word, full independence from Congress. What's even more astonishing is time to time I'll be in Congress testifying on this issue, and you see members of Congress bragging about the fact that they gave this power away. They feel that their real achievement was in preventing future Congresses from being a check and balance against this agency. It's really extraordinary. The founders right. believed that the, each branch of government would have ambition, and, and ambition would counteract ambition. That's how our Constitution would work. In Dodd-Frank, Congress just gave away its power, 
and celebrate it and continues. Members of Congress continue to celebrate that. It's a huge constitutional problem. Now, the Republicans have had control of the House since 2011. They've had control of the Senate since 2015, and they've had the White House now since January of 2017. Was there any attempt in Congress, Adam, during the Obama years to address this situation, or did members just figure it's no use because Obama's going to veto whatever he sent him, or is this all tied into a larger fix with Dodd-Frank? Well, of course, Republicans in Congress knew that President Obama would veto any reforms, but it didn't stop them from legislating. Mm -hmm. um, Congressman Jeb Henserling of Texas took a lead on this, proposed uh, the Financial Choice Act, which would have restructured the CFPB, um, made it less independent from Congress, would have turned it into a multi-member commission, so you'd have kind of internal check and balance among the members. They proposed those. Um, I, I can't remember if they passed only committee, if they passed the whole Congress, but this has been gestating in Congress for a long time now. And Congress did the best it could to assert oversight over agencies, bringing Richard Cordray in for hearings, asking questions. And the CFPB with Cordray would time after time just avoid questions, refuse to answer them. There's this one extraordinary moment, it was captured on video, it's on YouTube, where Congresswoman Ann Wagner asks the CFPB director who signed off on this massive, lavish overspending on the, on the agency's new building, or they're, they're totally overhauling their old building. It's costing more per square foot than luxury real estate in New York in some places. And Cordray bristles at the question and then sort of barks back at Congresswoman Wagner, why does it matter to you? And she's stunned by this question. She says, we're Congress. It has to matter to us. We are the representatives of the people. We're in charge of spending. And Cordray just shrugs off the question, which again, I think reflected very poorly on Cordray as with so much of what he did in office. But more fundamentally, it was a symptom of the deeper problem written into the statute. Right. Okay, you're a smart guy. You understand this town better than I do, I think. I want you to explain or try to try to make sense of what seems to be a contradiction, which is this. The Washington Post, Adam, reported last week, I read this, and I'll read this here, quote, the best, places to, the best places to work in the federal government rankings released by the Partnership for Public Service and the Deloitte Consulting Firm indicate the federal government is a better working place to work since Donald Trump took office. I'm not making this up. A 2.1 point, uh, point increase in 2017 employment engagement over 2016. The 61 and a half out of 100 score is the highest since 2011. The federal government, Adam, sounds like a bunch of happy worker bees. And yet, there's a group of wash workers in Washington, Adam, who call themselves Dumbledore's Army. Right. Who and what is Dumbledore's Army? And makes sense to me of the federal worker right now. What is, what's going on here? Well, we could, this all comes back to this fight within the CFPB over who's actually controlling the agency right now. We right. can delve into that if you like. Yes. But there are people within the agency who reject the authority of OMB Director Mulvaney to be the interim head. Right. So, so Trump picks, uh, puts Mick Mulvaney, the head of OMB, in charge, temporarily in charge? Temporarily in charge. Right, pursuant to the statute called the Vacancies Reform Act. And most of the CFPB senior leadership reportedly is quite happy with this choice, or they're not up in arms over it. But the people deeper down in the agency say, hell no, we won't go. There's right? at least some inside of the agency who have called themselves, this came out in, I think, the New York Times, called themselves Dumbledore's, Dumbledore's Army. Army. I had to ask my kids about this, but it turns out that's a reference to the Harry, Harry Potter, Potter book, right. which I think means that Mulvaney or Trump are Voldemort, he yes. who must not be named, <laughs> uh, the forces of evil. And so you have this group of federal bureaucrats, as I, I joked on Twitter, you know, congratulations, America, the people who are regulating your mortgages and credit cards are, are fancy themselves as Dumbledore's army, a 
characters out of this book, which I think means the CFPB should probably stand for the Children's Fantasy Playtime Bureau. Right. Now, we can joke about this, but there's a very serious issue here, which is that of bureaucracy attempting control agencies, which another way to put this is the so-called resistance. That's right. And so you have bureaucrats, if you will, administrative folks, claiming control over an agency when, in fact, they're supposed to report to somebody else. That's right. I think this will be one of the most significant stories of the first year of President Trump's presidency, not just this agency, but reactions in many, many agencies from the moment President Trump was elected and then inaugurated. Groups of bureaucrats who not only bristled at leadership that they didn't like, but who styled themselves as the so-called resistance movement, hashtag resistance, and who would go out of their way to slow or thwart lawful policies um, uh, within the, the limits of discretion afforded by the statutes that Congress passed and at the direction of the new political leadership. To have people inside of the agencies not just slow-walking things, but bragging about it publicly. We've, you know, we've always had problems with bureaucracy and government. There's a wonderful anecdote in our colleague Neil Ferguson's book about Kissinger, mm -hmm. where Kissinger goes down to visit Arthur Schlesinger in the first days of the Kennedy White House and asks, so how are things going? And Schlesinger is already depressed. He says, we can't get anything done. Everything gets slowed by the bureaucracy. <laughs> so much for the new frontier. So even Arthur Schlesinger in the, in the Kennedy White House is complaining about bureaucracy. This is nothing new. But to have the agents, but it is new, I think, for the bureaucracy. And I don't want to say it's the entire bureaucracy. It's very small pockets. But to have these small pockets in the bureaucracy going out of their way to brag about what they're doing and to announce what they're doing, often with the backing of the media, academia, members of Congress, the Democratic Party, to actually have part of the bureaucracy stand up and say, we're going to thwart what our elected leaders and our duly appointed leaders um, are telling us to do is extraordinary. And I think could, if it's allowed to continue for too long, bring on a real crisis. The soldiers in Dumbledore's army, yeah. are they appointees? Or are they GS workers? What are they? Well, they're GS workers. They are the, the civil servants, the people who work inside the agencies. They're hired on an ostensibly non-political basis. Mm -hmm. They are subject to certain protections um, against you know, um, uh, partisan hiring and firing. Mm -hmm. um, laws that have been on the books for a long time were very well-intentioned and I think could operate well, but, but if forced to a crisis in the way that the resistance would like to, to force a crisis, I think could require real reform. So if you're Mick Mulvaney and you have people inside this agency who are not willing to work for you, what, what are your options? Well, Mulvaney's in an interesting position I mean, because... I mean, it sounds like you could try to try to fire them, but it sounds like you're also going to end up in court. Yeah, I think that's right, that if Mulvaney were to take action against individual sort of resistance, resistors, I guess, in the agency, there would definitely be litigation. And the fact that Mulvaney is only the acting director and he's limited to, I think, 210 days in office, you know, limits what he could or would do. The real test will be when President Trump nominates a, a, a successor for a full term, a full five-year term, somebody who's nominated by the president, confirmed by the Senate. That person will need to make real difficult choices. And that, I think, will spur uh, a real fight, first in the agency and then in the courts. Let's assume Senator Warren does not like that nominee. Let's assume that Senator Warren maybe even goes to the mattresses over that nominee. Mm -hmm. How much of this has to do with Elizabeth Warren? If her name were not affixed to this, would this be as big a deal as it is right now? 
I think her role in it does amplify all of this. It seems to me she's just one of those lightning rod members, not not just because of what Trump calls her, but yes, she is. She is makes the hair on your back, you know, stand up on your neck, stand up. If you're a Republican, you hear the words Elizabeth Warren. So Ted Kennedy used to be the same way. Jesse Helms for Republicans, just Elizabeth Warren. And her and her fans are utterly devoted right. to the, to this project. It's sometimes I take a step back from the fight they're having at the C, over the CFPB right now, and I think maybe. Senator Warren and her fans just didn't realize that someday this agency wouldn't be led by people like Senator Warren, Mm -hmm. right? This idea that they created an agency, they filled it with its original civil servants. So you have an agency with effectively open-ended powers, fully staffed by people who believe in the mission, the original mission of the agency as defined not just by the statute, but by the mission of Richard Cordray and Liz Warren. I don't think it had occurred to these people, at least some of them, that someday a Republican president would nominate somebody who sees financial regulation quite differently. Mm-hmm. And the fact is, this first administration's CFPB benefited from how open-ended the statute is. They could basically fill in whatever the content they wanted into the law. Well, the thing is, that cuts both ways. And so now under a Republican administration, they could get somebody like Jeb, Jeb Henserling, Todd Zwicky, a colleague of mine at George Mason University's law school, who will administer the law faithfully and within the broad limits of discretion afforded by the statute, but in ways that 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 prioritize where available um, market-based solutions, uh, things quite different from the command and control operations promoted by this initial CFPB. Henser Ling is leaving Congress, by the way, isn't he? I, I didn't know. I think he's stepping down from Congress, if I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong on this, but I think he is actually leaving Congress. So he he would be a great uh, director of the CFPB, I think. Um, there's so many people who believe in the basic importance of protecting consumers, but who think that sometimes it's better done through market-based mechanisms rather than through the um, th- through the approach that, that Cordray took. And the statute leaves a lot of room for that. Right. Now, getting back to the idea of Trump versus the, um, the resistance versus the administrative state, um, it seems to me there's an end game that maybe works to his advantage, and that end game is to go to court and send this thing to the Supreme Court ultimately to decide what the federal worker has versus the president, because you have a Supreme Court that is conservative, and so far as tending on things like the, uh, like, the, like the Trump immigration visa is coming out on the president's side. Yeah, I'm spending a lot of time thinking right now about civil service reform. I'll be mm-hmm. writing on it. I hope it's the kind of thing that Congress holds hearings on right. and legislates on. Of course, in this day and age, that seems like uh, wishful thinking. Um, it's possible if this gets pushed to a crisis, not just at the CFPB, but, el- CFPB, but elsewhere, that President Trump or his agency heads might try to take unilateral action and force the issue. Then it would go to court. It might fare poorly in the lower courts. We've seen over and over again, courts really reacting badly to this administration, sometimes justifiably and sometimes, I think, unjustifiably. But in the Supreme Court, where in recent years you've seen a majority coming together that is pretty skeptical of regulatory overreach, Mm -hmm. the issue would get a pretty interesting um, airing. It's interesting in the current Supreme Court to to distinguish between justices who are concerned about federal power and justices who are concerned about administrative power at the federal level. Chief Justice Roberts is the key here. He is quite comfortable with broad federal power. We saw this in the Obamacare cases. He's okay when Congress legislates broadly on issues that might be better left or or should be left to the states. But Roberts is extremely concerned about 
the administrative state separate right. from Congress. And he's written opinions in using scorching rhetoric, raising concerns about agency overreach. So a, a fight over the bureaucracy, I think, could spur an interesting opinion from the chief. So let's do the cliff notes for the chief. Mm -hmm. Send him a copy of your Federalist Papers, Adam White. Right. And what page do you mark? What do you turn down? What does old Alex say about the federal government that the Chief Justice should be looking at? Well, first and foremost, that the Constitution gives the President not just the power, but also the duty to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. Mm -hmm. Now, for a hundred years, we've allowed agencies to have at least some independence where Congress sees fit, although Roberts seemed a little queasy about this in a case arising a little less than a decade ago involving accounting regulations where they struck down an agency's double layer of independence from the president. So Roberts has been a little squeamish about this. I think the civil service laws are another example where on its face the civil service laws are, might be perfectly well justified. But if over time they are leveraged to reliably thwart meaningful presidential oversight of the execution of a law, then you could see President, uh, Chief Justice Roberts stepping in and, and, and pulling things back a bit. The CFPB is a classic example. The CFPB is a law enforcement agency. Right. It, is, it is empowered to impose heavy, heavy penalties on small companies and big companies. And when you suddenly see members of the bureaucracy inside that agency announcing that they are the rightful controllers and that the president needs to back off, that is a huge red flag. I mean, we think about it in terms of political fights here in Washington. But to be a West Texas community bank, like the one I represented when I was in private practice, or an auto, an auto dealer, a used, used car dealer, or a payday lender, and to know that, that you have members of this bureaucracy just announcing that they are in charge of the law to the exclusion of our elected leadership mm -hmm. has to be pretty intimidating. Right. Now, under the category of the more things change in Washington, the more they remain the same. I remember in this town back in the late 1980s, Robert Byrd. Then the Senate Majority Leader did his level best to try to dismantle the federal government brick by brick and do what? Move it to West Virginia. He had a great scheme to move the Central Intelligence Agency to West Virginia. People in Washington did not take kindly to that. Byrd's motivation was what? Patronage. He just wanted to put money in West Virginia. But there is a larger philosophical fight going on here in Washington right now, Adam, which mm -hmm. is very much the same topic, and that's whether or not the federal workforce should be in Washington, D.C., I looked up the numbers right now. Only about 15% of the federal workforce is here in the district, here in these confines. Only about one in seven. It's not that large of a population. Hmm. But it's where the decision-making happens. So Ryan Zinke comes along. He's the new Interior Secretary, and Zinke has an idea. He wants to move the headquarters of the Bureau of Land Management, Fish and Wildlife, and Reclamation. He wants to move them out of Washington as soon as logistically possible. Here's his argument. You take something like BLM, Adam, and BLM, is in charge of about 250 million acres of land west of the Mississippi. It's about 90% of its portfolio. His thinking is that, geez, these are basically Western decisions. Let's make the decisions close to home out west. Don't put them in Washington. Mm -hmm. What say you? I think there's something to be said for this. In this day and age, with modern communications technology and our ability to travel, it makes much less sense to put everything in one place. In fact, from a national security perspective, it might make sense to spread these things out. Of course, there's cost to it. There is a benefit to having, you know, the leadership of these agencies close to the president. When I just said a moment ago that the president is the one who needs to take care that the laws are faithfully executed, there's some cost. But I think it's worth thinking about 
spreading these things out. Of course, that doesn't always work well. The EPA has 10 regional offices. They're spread out across the country. Right. Um, the one that governs, uh, the, the one that most immediately governs the folks at the Hoover Institution in California, uh, that region is headquartered in San Francisco, where it takes a very San Francisco approach to enforcing environmental laws. Um, so there's a downside, right, to separating that power, that regulatory power from the president. But I think it's worth experimenting in one or two offices, or one or two agencies. Let's try this out and see how it works. Right, but I think what you're getting at here, and this gets to the heart of the Trump presidency, a lot of what you write about and, and discuss, and that's the swamp. Mm -hmm. And not the swamp in terms of L'Enfant building on top of a Fen-like you know, climate, but the swamp in terms of what? mentality, mm -hmm. all wisdoms in Washington, the idea of shipping out of Washington. If you're Donald Trump, maybe that's a legacy you want, not just taking on the Washington establishment, but perhaps decentralizing Washington. Yeah, that's definitely the case. I, I think that, that it's definitely the case that he would see that as a major achievement. And I think it's worth trying, at least in a few agencies. We see this some in financial regulation already with regional banks, um, most famously the New York Fed. Right. We see this, um, like I said, in some ways in environmental regulation. Maybe give it a shot. Now, of course, picking where it goes um, would be immensely consequential, right? Environmental regulation is going to look a lot differently. Clean air regulation will look a lot differently if you put that part of the EPA in Detroit mm -hmm. versus San Francisco. Right. Um, so these are difficult choices to make, but I think, like I said, I think this is a place where experimentation would actually be very worthwhile. On something like consumer protection, would it matter if you put it in Boston, Massachusetts, or Dallas, Texas, or San Francisco, California, or is it a function, really, of who runs it? I think it's a mix of both. Mix I think both. financial regulation is one that would have, at least in the consumer level, would probably be affected less by geography, but I, w I don't want to say that out of hand. I think, at the end, that really is an area for consumer financial protection where personnel really would be policy. Okay, it is December of 2017. This administration's been around for about a year. December, Adam, is a time for what? Talking about accomplishments, and we're also about to get into a season of resolutions. So mm -hmm. let's talk about accomplishments. What has this administration done in 2017 on the regula regulation front, on the administrative front, that impresses you? Well, first and foremost, it's selection of personnel. Um, President Trump appointed some really solid people to run a lot of the agencies mm -hmm. and then put a, a friend of mine, uh, Naomi Rao from George Mason University, into the White House to oversee the agencies. She runs an office called the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. It sounds very sleepy, but it's actually immensely consequential. Cass Sunstein called it the cockpit of the regulatory state. It's the office in the White House that oversees what all the executive agencies are doing, has uh, has various measures of accountability, including overseeing the agency's cost-benefit analysis. How many people are in that office? Well, it's smaller than it used to be. I think it, its high watermark was 90 people, or here in Washington, we don't call them people, we call them full-time equivalents. Uh -huh. um, I think it's down to 45. It's actually a bit understaffed right now. Mm -hmm. But President Trump's appointment of people to lead that agency and other agencies, I think, is a, has been a great victory. And then those people serve as the conveyor belt for what we call energy in the executive. Hamilton talked about energy in the executive and mm -hmm. the president. That first layer and second layer of appointed leadership are the conveyor belt, the transmission belt that brings that energy into the agencies. Mm -hmm. And I think we've seen a lot of good come of that. We've seen agencies halting or rolling back or proposing to roll back a lot of regulation. Mm -hmm. um, you don't want to overcorrect too far. Um, I'm not you know, a libertarian anarchist, mm -hmm. but I think it's safe to say that, that we had gone too far too far 
on the side of regulation, and it's time to rethink a lot of these things. All right. Mr. Pruitt at EPA, what has he accomplished in 2017? Well, right off the bat, President Trump issued executive orders telling the EPA and other agencies to rethink the Clean Power Plan and the Waters of the United States rule, two of the most consequential and burdensome rules that the EPA um, had promulgated under President Obama. So President, uh, sorry, Administrator Pruitt is now undertaking that hard work. They've issued announcements that they are going to re reform those rules. We'll see what comes out of them. But I think he has taken an energetic approach to carrying out the, that mandate from the president. Um, second, Administrator Pruitt, who I've known for several years before he arrived at the EPA, those Dodd-Frank cases I was talking about, he was the Attorney General of Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. So I got to work closely with him over the years. And I saw how he tends to ask pretty tough questions. He really thinks these things through before he does anything. I've gotten the sense that at the EPA, he's taken a similar approach, that for all the criticism he's been taking over being a climate denier, they say, or hating science, or all these other things that they say about, about Republicans leading the EPA, I think he's taken a pretty thoughtful and measured approach to not getting out ahead of these things too, too quickly, not doing things too foolhardily, I think he's he's really thinking through, and his office is thinking through the best way to handle regulation of climate and water quality at the federal level. And what has Trump done on the executive order front? Well, he's issued a lot of them. Uh, he, within the first few months of administration, was on a record-setting pace of issuing executive orders. Most of them directed at rolling back previous executive action. So, in the EPA space, he ordered the EPA, as I said, to reconsider the Waters of the United States rule. The Clean Power Plan, that second order was part of a much larger order and suite of orders on energy independence, right. a fast-tracking infrastructure development. So in some of his orders, President Trump has directed one or two agencies to focus on a very specific subject matter and look for reforms. In other executive orders, they've cut across the board all executive agencies. These are things like putting a regulatory budget, they call it, a cap on the amount of total costs that an agency can impose upon uh, the public. Mm -hmm. Or what we call the two-for-one deal, this requirement that an agency cancel two rules for every new one that it promulgates. Right. Those are totally new concepts in the United States. We've seen them elsewhere. We've seen them in Canada and Europe and elsewhere. But they're, they're new in the federal government. So it's going to take some time to see how those play out, where the rubber really meets the road. But I think those are pretty innovative um, and, and certainly energetic approaches to regulatory reform. And in terms of undoing uh, past regulations, is this mostly Obama-era uh, ideas, or is this going all the way back to the early days of EPA? How many, and in how many instances, Adam, is he undoing things that the two Bushes or Reagan or Nixon would have done? Well, first and foremost, the reforms have been directed at President Obama's agencies. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm forgetting the exact number now, but over the summer, they, the, the Trump administration announced that they had either frozen or deferred maybe 800 proposed or pending rulemakings that the last administration had set into motion. Is there, is there a most egregious thing that the Obama administration did that stands out to you? If you were to highlight one example of regulatory overkills or one thing you would turn to in those eight years? Oh, the Clean Power Plan. Without, clean Power Plan. This, is the, um, this was administered by or promulgated by the EPA under the Clean Air Act um, ostensibly to regulate air pollutants in this case, greenhouse gas emissions. But what the EPA proposed was, in fact, the most sweeping reorganization of authority over energy policy that this nation has ever seen. Mm. The EPA basically reaching into the states and, and attempting to micromanage state-level energy and energy consumption policies. It was astonishing. 
Um, the Waters of the United States rule, I keep returning to both of these, but I think they are, the, I keep returning to them because they're the most important. The Waters of the United States rule was the single largest assertion of federal power over private lands that I think we've ever seen. It was, it was astonishing. On a, on a smaller level, President Obama's unilateral actions on his way out of office to, to designate large portions of land in the West as national monuments to prevent them from being developed or used, um, that was pretty sweeping. And now we see, it, it's astonishing, now we see proponents of the Obama administration filing lawsuits as President Trump declares that these, these monuments that President Obama declared were going to reform them, resize them, shrink them down, shrink them down Trump's critics are saying that a president has no power to reduce the size of these monuments. Did you see what Patagonia did? Uh, I, I, Patagonia puts out an email, puts out this big statement yes. after Trump does the uh, announcements in Utah yes. and says, the president's taking away your land. Right. Which is kind of an interesting sort of logical conclusion given that it was the previous administration that took the land away, you know, much to the objection of the Utah congressional delegation. So you can argue that Trump was actually giving the land back. That's right. That's right. It's, it's taking this land is your land, this right. land is my land to, <laughs> to all new levels. But it's a, again, it's a lot like the bureaucratic fight at the CFPB. Right. To see proponents of the last administration argue that what President, o, President Obama did on these monuments is, so to speak, carved in stone. Mm -hmm and that future administrations cannot reform that is, I think, ex it exemplifies the mindset a lot of a lot of the progressive right. pro-regulatory groups. This idea that the Constitution is utterly malleable, but regulations are written in stone forever and must never be changed. I think it flips our government on its head. Mm -hmm. Let's talk resolutions now. Sure. With 28 in the new year coming. And if I'm Congress, I'm looking at the clock. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at the November election. And I wouldn't wager on this, but I'm looking at the chance that I could lose control of half of Congress. I could lose the House. So that means that they need to get to work and get stuff down in the next 10 months or so. So what should Congress resolve to do, Adam, in 2018? Well, at the beginning of our conversation, I said that so much of the fault of the CFPB actually begins with Congress, which wrote mm -hmm. the statute. And that's the case across the board. Everything that we're talking about in terms of regulatory overreach, it ultimately comes back to the laws that Congress wrote. If we get through the next year, or if we get through four, four years of, of President Trump's term without meaningful legislative reforms of the agencies, it's going to be an, it's going to be an immense disappointment, right. a, a, a catastrophic, catastrophic wasted opportunity to reform and modernize the statutes that these agencies are administering, where they're claiming massive sweeping power under either new statutes or nearly century-old statutes like the Communications Act, which was the what the FCC invoked to promulgate net neutrality rules. If Congress doesn't reach in and modernize those statutes, and if it doesn't amend something like the Administrative Procedure Act, the rules of the road for all agencies, mm -hmm. if it doesn't do that, it's setting all of us up for swift reversal by the next Democratic president, whether it's in 2021, 2025, whenever. The next president will be able to come in and swiftly undo so much of what this administration is doing through unilateral executive orders and 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 regulatory actions, just as this president is right. doing Which, the previous one. And if we're a progressive Democrat, you could bet he or she would do it in about 30 seconds. That's right. That's right. Each administration gets smarter at, at, at undoing the work of its predecessor. Right. Okay, so those are two action items. What, mm -hmm. what else can Congress be doing? Or is, that, or is that enough for you for 2018? Con those are the most important things. Congress, in the longer term, needs to really rethink its own basic operations. 
administrative action occurs in that vacuum that's left by the absence of Congress. Mm -hmm. When Congress isn't legislating, when Congress isn't using its power of the purse effectively, it creates space for these administrative agencies to step in and take over, assert control over, over immensely consequential policy subjects. Congress, this is the biggest, I think, the biggest problem in day-to-day in, in -day governance in, in Washington today is Congress is no longer the first branch. It's now, you know, it's, it's now an ombudsman for the administrative state where it just holds hearings and complains about what the agencies did after they did it. I think Congress, and this is a much longer project, a much larger program, Congress needs to step back and think about how its procedural rules, its budgeting process, all of that, how that exacerbates the problem of the modern administrative state. Okay, what about judicial appointments? We all seem focused on the health and welfare of Anthony Kennedy and the Supreme Court, Adam, but there's a whole other ballgame going on, and that's what Trump is doing with both federal district and appellate nominations. Yeah, that's extremely important. These judges will be President Trump's legacy long after he and his administration are gone. Um, during the Reagan years, there was a Carter appointee named Patricia, uh, Patricia Wald who said that she, she and her colleagues from, who were appointed before Reagan took office saw themselves as trustees for the ghosts of previous Congresses, right? That they were there long after Carter and those Congresses enforcing their vision of what the law meant. So President Trump's appointees will play a similar role in, in maintaining fealty to the rule of law long after this administration is gone. His appointment of Gorsuch is crucial in this, in this respect because Neil Gorsuch has, has, has been a vocal critic of a lot of the overreach of modern administrative law, or maybe better said, he's been a critic of the underreach of courts in overseeing the agencies. And so that appointment, future appointments to the Supreme Court, appointments to the lower court will be very consequential in terms of the oversight that agencies get. But appointments are a much, appointments beyond the courts, I think, are also extremely important. The, the, the slow pace of appointments throughout this first year of the administration might be seen as the biggest failing of this administration with respect to the administrative state. The slow pace of nominations to that second and third level of leadership at agencies has left a leadership vacuum that has been filled by the bureaucracy that was left behind by the last administration. Adam, are they behind the curve because they just don't have the people they want, or are they behind the curve because they're just not paying attention to it, or is it that thing where they find people and then people change their minds? Appointments are a very messy, messy process, understood, but they seem especially messy with this administration. It's hard to say. I think it's a combination of all of these things. This administration, needless to say, arose through an unconventional way that brought it to office without the usual kind of stockpile of ready appointees. Yeah, you don't you don't have the traditional large campaign which mm -hmm. has a lot of people lining up for these jobs and you also don't have a president who is, you know, really has a strong relation with his own party, which again would produce those those people ready to step in. So that's one of the problems. Right. And every age every new administration prizes loyalty and it right. should. Mm -hmm. Again, if the president is the one who takes care that the laws are faithfully executed, he needs to be able to rely on people he trusts. Right. Which means that this administration at its dawn had a real challenge in finding people it could trust. My sense, just from the outside, and this is just what I read in the press, is that initially there was there were many people in the, and around the White House who could veto possible nominations. Yes. That means that it's much easier to reject nominees than it is to bring them in. Right. And so you had competing power centers in and around the White House um, 
vetoing prospective nominations, it meant that it was almost impossible to get people through. I can also anecdotally point you to friends, Adam, who have actually been put up for things, have actually put their name forward, and have been stuck in the process for six to eight months. And at a certain point, you step out of it because... You know, you just, you're not going to wait forever to get the appointment. You need to get on with your life. That makes sense. And these yeah. things get delayed in the Senate, too. Um, that's sure. a huge... And the Senate Democrats have done everything they can to stretch out every single nomination. This gets me back to the judges' question. Mm-hmm. Because on the one hand, Adam, judges are incredibly simple to get through. You can check, check, you thank your friend Chuck Schumer for this. They changed the rules in the Senate so you cannot filibuster lower court appointments. And so, in theory, Donald Trump could just bulldoze a 1,001 judicial picks in. But there is a process issue, and the process is getting them through the Judiciary Committee and vetting and so forth. So what? how fast track it, How fast can you move these things, Adam? I, I know you just can't offer 200 nominations at once. The committee will, will freeze. But it seems to me at some point Trump is going to have to sit down with Mitch McConnell and say, okay, you know, the clock's ticking. we got till November to get this stuff done. Mitch, you know, how fast can we get things done? Well, there is a minimum amount of debate they have to, de- they have to right. under Senate rules, have to devote to each nomination. Exactly. So yeah. that's one thing that might require reform. I mean, when these are lifetime appointments, I hesitate to say we should use a bulldozer at all, right? right. These are lifetime appointments. Mistakes are made. Mm-hmm. We know that all too well from previous judicial appointments. Mm-hmm. And so it is important to strike a balance between energetic appointment and ensuring that there is still the right amount of um, of vetting of judicial nominations, both with by the by the people responsible for nomination and then by the people in the Senate. Right. But Senator McConnell, for all of his friction, at least what's been reported in public, is you know, allegations of friction between him and the president. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the president's the one, you know, criticizing Senator McConnell in public and vice versa. Senator McConnell has clearly taken the Senate's power to confirm judicial nominations very seriously. Right. Because they have nom- they have confirmed judges at a pretty fast clip. Right. And so, so far, I think Senator McConnell should feel good about what he's done. Right, but I know Mitch McConnell is at all times concerned about the pace of work in the Senate. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, talking to people who followed these things, they've said that, you know, when discussions have come up about moving people around inside the cabinet, Rex Tillerson leaving and Mike Pompeo maybe taking over or maybe Tom Cotton moving, McConnell has pushed back saying that, you know, I don't want more nomination fights in 2017. We've got enough going on here as is. So I'm curious, Adam, as to how intent Mitch McConnell is on judicial picks, but also how intent Mitch McConnell is in terms of going after the administrative state. In other words, the leader's got a lot of stuff to deal with in 2017. So where do you see this in his pecking order? That's a good question. I don't have a very good answer for it. I'm encouraged by the pace with which he's approached this. But he, of course, is looking beyond just this administration, right? He's looking to future administrations as well. Right. And trying, we've seen this, you know, his predecessor, Senator Reid, changed a lot of rules. Some now, like as you mentioned, are now benefiting the Trump administration directly, right, and by their ability to get judges through without a filibuster and Supreme mm-hmm. Court nomination through without a filibuster. But Senator McConnell has to take the longer view and think about institutionally where do you strike a balance. And I just don't know where he's going to be with this. The Federalist Papers, Madison you know, famously writes in Federalist 51 that the interests of the man must be attached to the rights of the place. This idea that the framers said or assumed that people in government would be attached to their institutions. Today that seems so little the case. I joke that the only two people in government who really believe this anymore are Mitch McConnell and John Roberts, who are attached to their institutions, maybe sometimes to a fault, their critics would say. 
And I just don't know how the senator is going to strike that balance on this policy. So let's go down a level in Congress then, Adam. If, uh, if it's not Mitch McConnell to look at and Paul Ryan, tell me one or two kind of quiet heroes in this. For example, we talked about relocating parts of the federal government. A guy to watch on that is Cory Gardner, the mm. senator from Colorado, who's very much in this interest in part because he probably sees Denver as a, as a welcoming area for parts of the federal government. If you're trying to get regulatory reform in Congress, done administrative reform, and even judicial reform, Adam, who do you turn to in Congress? Who, who are your heroes? Well, in the Senate, uh, my home state Senator Chuck Grassley, obviously, has been a force on both oversight of the administrative state, but also on the, the judicial appointments. He's been great. Um, on regulatory reform more generally, uh, Senators Portman and Lankford, mm -hmm. um, and um, um, Heidi Heitkamp, a Democrat, uh, Joe Manchin, and others have been sponsoring regulatory reform bills in the Senate. Right. The, the House Judiciary Committee has been heroes over the years, proposing legislation over and over again that's passed the House and has just awaited action by the Senate and the President. And so that committee, um, and then folks, as we mentioned earlier, Jeff Henserling and others who are pushing very hard on specific policies like financial reform, they've been real heroes as well. So it sounds like the smart play might be to go to the red state senators in 2018 and say, hey, by the way, <laughs> you're up for re-election. Here's what we want to get done. Yeah, it's been interesting, say, in the Senate, to see not just Portman and Orrin Hatch co-sponsor the big reg reform bill, but then Senators Heitkamp and Manchin from Democratic states, red right. states, Democratic senators in red states. Seeing them get, get on board with this has been important. It'll be interesting to see what Senator McCaskill from Missouri does in the next year. She's going to face... Um, uh, a Republican challenge for the Senate. She may have to come in this direction as well. Okay, final question. I'll let you get out of here. Dumbledore's Army. Yes. Are they still fighting five years from now, or will they disband? And that's not just the CFPB. I mean, that's government in general. Are you going to see the defiance in the administrative under this administration as long as it's around, or will eventually this dissipate? I think next year is actually going to be more heated than this year. And this year, the Trump administration and Congress actually had a possibility of legislative reform. As we get into the next year and the year after that, the legislative reform traditionally breaks down, right? The, the first year is the best opportunity for the president to get legislation through. After that, things become much more difficult, mm -hmm. which means presidents and agency heads become much more energetic in their own use of executive power, which means there'll be even more opportunity for the resistance movement to resist. And so I think next year could actually be the, the real interesting moment when self-styled self resistors clash with the constitutionally elected president and appointed agency heads. Hey, Adam White, I enjoyed the conversation. Uh, me too, always. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th president of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word and convince your friends to give us a listen. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Adam White and his Hoover colleagues to your inbox every workday. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at HooverInst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Adam J. White is on Twitter, and his Twitter feed is, curiously enough, at Adam J. White, D.C. That's at Adam, Adam J. White, D.C. Anything else I need to plug for you? Every time I hear my Twitter handle with DC at the end, I feel like I'm just part of the problem, part of the swamp. What are you doing for the holidays, here or Iowa? Uh, we're staying out in the outskirts, out in Virginia, and hopefully enjoying some snow. Sounds good. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. 
This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.